Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder Podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to History Hack. If you didn't know by now, we are the revolution. That means we're sharp, witty, lots of fun, but it also means that we're essentially the peasants in Les Mis huddled round a table in the corner of the bar with no money. If you enjoy the show, please do support us. We have a Patreon account by which you can donate a small monthly sum in appreciation of what you're hearing. Alternatively, we have Ko-fi in which you can just do a one-off donation as a thank you if you particularly enjoy a certain episode. Either way, we massively appreciate all of your support. Hope you enjoy the show. Hello, welcome to another episode of History Hack. You have me and Chris. Chris, tell us who we've got on today. Morning, Alina. We have got Toby Purser, who is an author and a historian, who has written several books, including Raiders and Invaders, Medieval England, 1042 to 1228, and The First Crusade and the Crusader States. And he's here today to talk to us about his new book, The Making of England from Rome to Reformation. Toby, welcome, welcome to History Hack. Thank you very much for having me on. At least none of you made a medieval joke at the beginning of this conversation like I did and uh, put myself into trouble. Yet. <laughs> Yet. Actually, to be fair, we, we started talking about other, other aspects of history and we got onto the conversation of Toby's book and the quotes that he's used and things. And then we moved on to a bit of politics and worldwide things and what I do, what Chris does. But at the end of the day, we kind of came down to this one question that we thought should be asked. I'm going to kick off with this first question. What do you mean by medieval? What is medieval? Uh, Ryan, thank you. Well, how long have we got? But I'll, I'll, I'll keep it keep it brief. The, the book, the book, The Making of England, uh, covers well from the fall of Roman Britain through to the Reformation. So that thousand years of around about 400 to 1500. So that's traditionally called the medieval period. Well, technically it means the Middle Ages. So that kind of assumes that it was the middle period. So you've got the the Roman classical period of antiquity, followed by the medieval middle period, followed by what historians have called the early modern period, and then into the modern 20th century. And I suppose, I guess we now live in the postmodern. However, what we were talking about was was really more about the pejorative meaning of medieval, um, as in it seems to be a kind of connotation for all things barbaric or all things kind of simplistic, um, and I wanted to I start the book by examining what do we mean by by medieval and uh, the, the, the way it's unfairly treated as a kind of simplistic dark age. We'll, we'll talk about that in a bit. That's what I'm sure. This idea that after Rome, civilization collapses, and 
everything's lost for a thousand years, which which is true to an extent, but that doesn't necessarily make it barbaric or simplistic. But, it, but there's two things there: the, the technical Middle Ages, um, which is the assumption that it follows on from classical antiquity, and the idea that in popular thinking it's kind of barbaric. You know, it's kind of Games of Thrones and you know, uh, Lord of the Rings and this kind of, you know, dragons and devils and demons and, you know, knights and castles, that kind of very, very kind of simplistic image. So I hope my book goes some way to unpicking that. Yeah, because you've got in the first chapter, you talk about other myths and phrases that get used that need to be uh, broken down, things that we use all the time, like Dark Ages and Anglo-Saxons. But the, those terms are much like medieval are, are overused and not correct, are they? Yeah, again, it's um, <clears throat> it's very difficult to unpick that going against that cultural trend. I kind of controversially in the book say that Anglo-Saxon is, I, I don't call them Anglo-Saxons. I call them the early English. Um, because, again, the contemporaries didn't call themselves Anglo-Saxons. All these are terms that historians and teachers and popular culture has kind of labelled the past, you know, so the Anglo-Saxons, you know, um, the the Anglo-Normans, the, the Tudors and so on. None of these were used by contemporary people. I mean, what, what do we call ourselves today? Do we call ourselves the, the Caroline, Carolingians, you know, we call them the monarch, Charles. Were we Elizabethans and uh, Elizabeth II today? Did people in the 8th century call themselves Anglo-Saxons, they didn't. They were Angles, they were Saxons, they were English. Uh, we have those We have those words, but they didn't call themselves Anglo-Saxons. And of course, they certainly didn't realise that they were living in a dark age. Again, the dark ages is a later label that we, we put on to the past. You know, after the fall of, fall of Rome, the so-called dark ages, when Edward Gibbon, the decline of fall of Rome, the Roman Empire of the 18th century, the, the, the kind of enlightenment histories and looked back and said well it's a, a dark age but people living in the 6th and 7th century wouldn't necessarily have thought that um but it is it is difficult to unpick that um so i i, I go against anglo-saxon but i i concede to vikings for example which uh, of course is about the vikings which kind of was a contemporary word the viking was a kind of raider or a pirate but again contemporaries called them pagans because they were, they were pagans, they were not Christian, they were the Danes, most of them were, were from Denmark, so they're called the Danes and pagans, um, where Viking was used much as an insult. So I've tried to unpick some of those phrases and to, to certainly unpick the Dark Ages when we look at the fabulous treasures of Sutton Hoo and uh, the Staffordshire Horde, the, the artwork and the intellectual production of the 6th and 7th century was, was anything but... Uh, barbaric or dark. So I've just got to say, Chris wrote these questions and I'm reading the next one and I'm trying not to laugh as I read this because the way it's phrased is just, it's just brilliant. So I'm going to read it as it's, as it's written because you'll all hear it in a second. Right. So when the Roman period ended, the whole Roman populace didn't just up and leave. What happened to those that stayed and the local citizens? It's brilliant. That's a great question. I think it's a fantastic. I just love the way it's phrased. They didn't just up and leave. I just think it's just absolutely brilliant. That's why I'm trying not to laugh because I just find it great. 
it is it's fair enough because again the simplest view we have of the past you know uh, where we label people the Tudors, the Stuarts, the Georgians you know the, the horrible histories kind of version of, of the past which is parodies actually the popular understanding so what happened did the Romans just leave well actually they did actually in a sense they did up and leave the last troops were withdrawn in about 407 and the administration kind of left the civil service did kind of leave and, and a lot of the skill set left as well. And that's what people don't kind of focus on, that, that the, the skills for smelting and uh, building, well, it wasn't just a supply chain that collapsed, which we kind of had a flavour of that in 2020 in our own current era, but the skill set also withdrew. So the, the skilled people left uh, with the administration. So there was, there was that sense of... Um, of collapse and and within 30 years uh the urban mechanisms are of the uh, the taxation the buildings the baths the public works had declined and collapsed very very quickly so yes there was that sense that people did uh did leave but but again if you were romano british a citizen of bath or, or silence system london which is a vast city the biggest city outside rome um, you try to carry on as best you could. You didn't suddenly think, oh, no, I'm going to be an Anglo-Saxon now, uh, so I've got to wear a different costume. You, you carried on. You didn't know that this was, was going to be the case. So it is a fair question in the sense that they did, they did, kind, of, uh, they did kind of go um, and took with them that expertise. But the uh, majority of people uh, remained, of course, and, and tried to carry on as, as best they could. Yeah, it's, it's something I've been trying to explain to my kids while they've been doing their history. Like, you don't go to bed a Tudor one night and uh, wake up in the morning and a, a Stuart with a big floppy hat and a beard. It's uh, it's more of a gradual thing. Absolutely, it's a label that we we put on the past. You know, uh, that the end of the Middle Ages after the Battle of Bosworth, you know, twenty second of August, you know, end of the seventh becomes king, and suddenly we're all Tudors. Um, absolutely not. These are artificial uh, boundaries, but but certainly in Britain in the early um, fifth century, that there was a very dramatic collapse of the administration and the, um, you know, taxation legal situation of the skill set did collapse very rapidly. But the same is true for the Germanic Germanic tribe in Germanic tribes. The archaeology reveals it's a complex story of integration. It's not just like um, a simple invasion when the Jutes and the Angles and the Saxons come over. It's not like, say, the Norman invasion of 1066, where they come in, everything changes. The German, the Germanic tribes, it's more of a gradual sneaking process, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Um, <clears throat> and I think, this again, this is the the popular view, which has, has come down, actually bead. Uh, Bede is, is, is guilty of much of this. Bede was uh, a monk writing the early 8th century up in Northumberland, and he wrote the first history of England, um, which is an extraordinary piece of work and, and did draw upon um, recent history. But when it comes to the 5th century, he made it all up. Uh, he literally made it up because we only have one written source of, of the whole 200-year period by, by a monk called Gildas, writing in around about 550. And his his information is fairly obscure. So Bede came along and kind of decided to, to impose his chronology on what had happened. Um, and he said that in 449, 
exactly in 449, you know, the Anglo-Saxons arrived. It's a bit like D-Day in reverse. They were kind of splashed ashore at Thanet and Kent with their kind of winged helmets. And they all arrived. And it was the beginning of the Anglo-Saxon era, which is, was absolute nonsense. So the archaeology, as you, as you say, uh, now tells us that the migrations occurred over, you know, 100, 200 years. And actually, recent research just come out after my book was was finished has, has demonstrated even possibly over 400 years the waves of migration, mainly from Denmark, um, northern northern Germany, arriving on boats, you know, um, and, and and starting before the Romans left as well in in the late fourth uh, century, as they were brought in as as uh, mercenary troops and, and and warriors who who initially were given kind of citizenship. Um, and then after the collapse, they start to arrive in much bigger numbers. So it's a very gradual uh, migration period that over 100, 150 years. So slowly England and the English begin to replace the Britons. How was the arrival of Christianity? Oh, the arrival of Christianity, that changes everything. And the rise of the English kingdoms like Mercia affect all of this? Well, that's a very good point. I mean, again, the replacement theory kind of, again, Bede would have us think that these Anglo-Saxons all arrived and um, in great numbers, and they kind of exterminated the natives and replaced them. Um, again, it's a very, very, you know, uh, when we're talking about uh, a genocide earlier on, and exactly, in fact, Bede does, does use the word exterminate. Um, he does use that word, it disappears. And so the popular view was the Anglo-Saxons were the kind of master race. And in fact, archaeology shows that they were on average one inch taller and uh, they from cemetery evidence. And they did have, you know, better weapons and they had longer swords and, and stronger uh, swords. So they were physically better equipped. However, um, the, the, the DNA um, evidence suggests that only up to about 30, 30, 40 percent of the kind of migrants were, were English and most heavily settling in Norfolk, Suffolk, Kent, uh, the east of England. Um, so what happened to everybody else? I mean, were they literally exterminated? Probably not. I mean, exterminated can also mean to drive away. Um, so what I propose is that the, the British uh, either migrated west uh, to what is now Cornwall, into Wales. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Or even into Brittany. We know there were migrations out of, out of Britain into, into what is now Brittany in, in France, hence Brittany. Um, all they were enslaved. Uh, this is a very unsavory aspect of the, the kind of English nation. So they, they did have slaves. Slavery was very common. Obviously, the Roman Empire it carried on. And so the British, the Britonic people, were, were, were very likely enslaved by the new elite uh, minority. Um, or they were possibly killed in, in there were battles. 
battles between British tribes, of course. The Gildas talks a lot about the British fighting the British, um, and the the uh, the, uh, the Saxons tribes were kind of divide and rule and establishing their own their own kingdom. So by by around about six hundred A.D., when Augustine comes from Rome to 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 convert the pagan English. You've got a patchwork of, of little kingdoms, you know, Kent, and Sussex, Wessex, and uh, and so on. We've also got a lot of uh, British, most of the population is British in terms of the kind of DNA. And you've also got British kingdoms that have survived um, in various pockets here and there. And of course, most obviously in, in Wales. And in fact, the actual word... Um, Wales is, is a, an old English word, weenas, which actually means slave. So what happens to the English people is that they actually become slaves in their own country. So the, the English elite turn up and, and, you know, take control and enslave them. And so weenas is an old English word for, for slave, which becomes the word Welsh. So Wales uh, was actually the, the place of the slaves. Cornwall. Uh, Cornwall was heavily populated by by the British, who also know, was known as slaves. So, slave and Welsh, and and British is synonymous. So, that holds right through to Doomsday Book in 1086, so the highest uh, slave population, because England remained a slave population well into the 12th century. 20% of the population of Cornwall in 1086 were slaves. So, it's the highest, whereas on average, 10%. Of the population was saved. So Cornwall has the highest density of slaves. It's a direct, con- direct consequence of the the English kind of conquest and migrations of, of the seventh and eighth century, and even the early law codes of King Inni of Wessex, about about six nineties, has a clause for the English and a clause for the for the Welsh, the British, the slave. So there's two that apartheid. It's a legal apartheid. So the British, the Welsh, if they commit theft or adultery or fornication, they could be executed or castrated, whereas the English have to pay the Wehrgeld, the, the, the price, the, the financial cost. So, you know, if you're a slave, you'll get castrated for rape. If you're English, you'll get a fine. So we've even got a legal apartheid going on there as well. And then just as things seem to be settling down, with, with the with the English, the Norse turn up and they bring in, they bring Englishness to sort of the brink of extinction. But how's this saved by? Uh, I, I I go back to my degree and I, I hated Asser's life of Alfred. But I'm going to say, how did King Alfred uh, and his um, children and successors then help defeat the Norse and reverse this? A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Yes, I mean, uh, they are the, the English, the kind of manifest destiny of the... the, the uh, English uh, master races, I like to see themselves as even Bede uh, talks about that, uh, by the, the, the arrival of the Vikings um, in the late um, 8th century. By this time, we've got a, an established network of English kingdoms, uh, Wessex, Northum Northumberland, um, Mercia, and so on. Um, and um, the, the English-British um genetic social divide is, is much more blurred but the you have a patchwork of english elite um kings and the viking arrival is is devastating it is the greatest accident existential threat to this this english network it's very important to say that there's no such thing as england by the time of king alfred what you've got is a patchwork of kingdoms so there's a king of wessex there's a king of uh, Northumbria, there's a king of, of Mercia. There's no such thing as England. They do talk about Britain, which is a kind of Romano-Roman legacy. They, they, they do talk about the, the king of Britain. There's no such thing as of England until the arrival of the Vikings. And the Vikings uh, wipe out all of the other English kingdoms. And really, uh, the, the Vikings are the kind of shock doctrine that, that in a sense, um, makes England because the only English kingdom left is Wessex. All the other kings have been slaughtered. It's total collapse. The Vikings have settled in, in Repton um, in the winter of 866. The great army under Guthrum. Alfred is the last one left. It's, it's a real 1940 moment, you know. Um, but of course, Alfred also, like Winston Churchill, not only was at the heart of history, but he actually wrote the history as well, because the first Anglo-Saxon chronicles were commissioned by Alfred in 893. So he decided he knew that the pen was mightier than the sword, that he did defeat the Vikings in battle, but he also knew that to win the war, he'd have to win it through literacy, learning, uh, you know, the, the the backup of Rome he wasn't just good enough to win one battle, which he, he does in 878, a crucial battle. So he's nearly captured in, in Chippenham as uh, a kind of 12 days of Christmas when, when the Christian feast and the Vikings know this, the, the dastardly Vikings cheat because they're pagan, so they know they can catch him napping, you know, having, having his turkey and so on. And they nearly, nearly caught him at Chippenham. So he escaped with a band of brothers, you know, it's very kind of, it's very Shakespearean, it's very it's very Churchillian, into the marshes in, in Athelney, the Somerset levels, which at that time were, were totally flooded, as, as they probably will be in about 30 years' time again. So, and, and these various places like Glastonbury Tor and so on, you know, he, he hides out in the marshes, but we don't know, maybe 100 or so men. And uh, he manages to regroup and fights a battle at Edding, Eddington and defeated Guthrum comprehensively in battle. But uh, instead of executing Guthrum, he baptised him 
yeah, it's a stroke of genius. You know, if he executed Guthrum, there would have been a kind of martyrdom of the Viking leader, but he baptised him, which is the ultimate kind of humiliation, comes his godfather. Um, and so the next 10 years, you know, re-educating the English and, and really spreading the word of the, the Anglican, the English people. Um, still not England, but it's all about survival and consolidation with, with the kind of... Um, fortified towns of Winchester and Wantage and, and, and Wareham and so on. And uh, the Dane law, the kind of the Iron Curtain, as it were, of the, the late 8th um, um, eighth, eighth century, the division between the Danish territory. But, but it's not England yet, but, but the Viking invasions uh, create that vacuum. Um, and it's Alfred's daughter, Ethelfleet, and his son, Edward, who go on to take over the Danish territories in Mercia and the north. And his grandson, Athelstan, declares in 927, he declares this new kingdom of England. And that is only possible because of the Viking, you know, invasions of the late 8th century that create the vacuum uh, with Alfred's survival and the kind of reconquest of his son, daughter and grandson. Um, and uh, yes, it's 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 a great story. It's a story written mainly by Alfred, and he does rewrite the 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 past. You know, he he makes out that he was the only one left, and we actually know that um, there's archaeological evidence, coin evidence, that he had an alliance with the king of Mercia, Kenwulf. But in the chronicle, Kenwulf is written off as a foolish thane. You know, so he's deliberately kind of creating, you know, a bit like bit like 1940. He stood alone and he did it all by himself. And you know, his achievement was that much greater. But uh, having said that, it was it was undoubtedly an extraordinary achievement of, of survival. So then comes the Norman invasion, 1066, a date that I know. Was it more devastating than the Norse invasion? Uh, <clears throat> yes and no, uh, because the interesting point about 1066 is that the reason why England is conquered is because it is a nation state. Now, this is something of a paradox. Uh, in fact, the more civilized uh, a state is, the more defined its borders, the more intact there is something to conquer, um, if you see what I mean. So, um, you know, it, it, people would argue, oh, well, it's conquered because it's weak and vulnerable and the Saxons are too busy drinking beer. But it's the quite opposite. Again, back to 1940, that you know, Nazi Germany conquered France in six weeks. You know, it can be done. You could conquer an entire state very quickly. So the irony of 1066, you've actually got a very sophisticated uh, civilised nation state that is totally intact with laws, boundaries, rules, regulations. And it has been conquered before, don't forget, under King Canute in 1016. Canute, of course, the Danish invasions finally do break through, they're Christian this time, and England is conquered in 1016. And there's a big battle at Ashingdon in Essex, which, which kind of wipes out most of the English elite. He governs till 1035. So the old English monarchy only returns by, by mistake, by accident, under Edward the Confessor, and he has a succession crisis. So William the Conqueror invades in 1066. So there's a precedent for this total conquest of England. It's happened 50 years before. Um, so in that sense, it's, a, it's just, it's a, it's a regime change. 
um, from the Anglo-Saxon elite to the Norman elite. The Kingdom of England is left intact. It has now reached maturity. It's a state and doomsday book, uh, which is, which is of course, made 20 years later, is actually evidence not just of the Norman conquest, but evidence of the, you know, sophistication of the late um, English uh, state. Well, how much of that devastation was immense in, in terms of Yorkshire, particularly the north was, was devastated by William deliberately and actually spent, it took centuries for the north to recover economically um, because it's always seen as slightly separate to, to the south, the north-south divide that is still with us today. Um, all Anglo-Saxon churches nearly all were destroyed, pulled down, cathedrals uh, was destroyed. Castles were built, uh, demolishing vast areas of urban um, um, locations. Lincoln, Oxford, for example, half the town was destroyed to build castles. Um, so that there was devastation, uh, but the regime change was so total and everything else carried on. The laws, the, like, the custom, the taxation system. Because William realised what he'd got was a highly sophisticated, extremely wealthy nation state that he could he could just you know continue uh, and he was crowned in the age-old uh, fashion in in Westminster Abbey as Harold had been before him and and so on because he wanted to see himself very much as a you know an English king as well. In 1215 uh, what sets England onto a separate path to the other European kingdoms? <clears throat> well uh, the Norman conquest um, as I say kind of retained that English uh, nation state that had developed in the 10th, 11th century, um, but replaced it entirely with this Anglo-Norman elite. And one of the things that happens in 1066 is that England um, is brought into the European uh, as a kind of Brentry, not a Brexit, as a Brentry. And in 1066, we're brought into the continent because um, so many of the the Norman uh, lords, including William, of course, who was Duke of Normandy. Uh, so many Nor Norman landowners had land in England and in Normandy. So it's very much a kind of um, cosmopolitan Anglo-Norman uh, political state. Now, hundred fast forward 100 years to William's descendant, uh, King John. John's got a, got a problem because by, by 1200 or so, the connections between England and Normandy are much weaker. And so the, the English elite, who are French, of course, they're not actually English, the English aristocrats uh, have less concern with the French possessions. But John, of course, was a French uh, uh, king, was born in central France and uh, 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 in Anjou, and sees that as his family patrimony and in 1204 that's all lost you know the king of france conquers normandy and vast swathes so john spends 10 years trying to get it back scheming and plotting and taxing and um exacting um very unfair tolls from, from the barons by the time we get to 1214 there's a rebellion and it leads to to the great charter which which um uh essentially was a rebellion of the aristocrats who were fed up with John uh, telling them what to do and he shut down the law courts and he'd abused uh, their wives and he'd, he'd executed his own nephew. So he was a tyrant, he was very much a tyrannical king. So not a personal issue there. But in the Great Charter, they, they, they say that, look, you know, you cannot govern by yourself. 
you don't have to be uh, uh, kind of guided by a council of, of 25. You can no longer govern by yourself because you are completely out of control. So that's quite revolutionary, although the, the first Magna Carta was torn up, the one that was witnessed in June 1215 was, was, was the Pope annulled it. Uh, John died the following year and it's reissued in 1217 without the the kind of council of the 25 who were going to look after the king because you've got a different king, nine-year-old boy, Henry III, and you've got different problems. But the principle of kingship by consent has now been established. And again, that's not new in Magna Carta. We do see it before various occasions and in, in, in the last hundred or so years, but it's now written into this very powerful document that's reissued in 1225. And from that, we get the first parliaments in, in the 1230s and 40s. And by 1300, under John's um, grandson, Edward I, Magna Carta has become part of the, the, the legal cornerstones. And it's referred to and quoted by, by uh, judges, jurors, you know, great barons. They always wavered at the king and say, you can't have huge amounts of money to go back into France and Wales and Scotland because it says here you've got to get the consent of the people. So that that sets England, it does set England on a very different path. I mean, there are similar documents in the early 13th century in Spain um, and in, in Hungary. Uh, there are kind of similar intellectual movements um, against tyrannical kings, but England, England does set on a different path, not just because of Magna Carta, but because uh, the Parliament, which is a kind of representation, not just of the great barons, but look at the next level down of the, the the local gentry from the shires, which which makes England quite special. So the Middle Ages, they're quite uh, it's quite crazy, really. In the Middle Ages, you've got conquests of Edward the First, you've got the plague, you've got peasant revolts. How did the English actually weather all of these storms? Well, uh, you say it's crazy, but the last last 10 years have been pretty crazy in our own world as well. I think um, we've just been through a pandemic recently, and it might give us a bit of sympathy as to what it was like in, in the 1350s with the, with the Black Death, you know, which uh, obviously the mortality rate was 50%. But um, people responded the same way we did in 2020. They went into lockdown, they went into quarantine because there was no no cure, no prevention. Um, again, we've got to be careful of, of thinking, oh, yes, we're back to the medieval pejorative. It's, it's barbaric and terrible. You know, it, it was in the early 14th century, there's no doubt economically, uh, the, 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 we went into a kind of mini um, ice age. Uh, the temperature dropped and uh, the weather, you know, they went through climate change. The harvests were, were terribly bad for decades. Um, and there, there was a cattle, cattle crop failures across Europe and tens of millions died you know so it's like what we call a harvest sensitive economy in other words if there's a bad harvest uh, you starve you die there's no surplus the population of england is about five million and it's overpopulated and we're not producing enough food so the early 14th century really was a, a terrible time and we even think in this century that the average height dropped by an inch or two on average, it didn't recover until the 18th century because 
the average height before that was about five foot six or seven, not far off what it is today. But the 14th century was such a terrible time of economic climate change, um, pandemic, and these are lessons for our own time, of course, living through. You know, maybe people will say in 100 years' time, how do they cope in 2020, 2021? Um, so we have a little bit of sympathy about how, how did people, people cope, and, and it was incredibly tough times in the, in the middle 14th century particularly. So skipping ahead a bit, because we don't want to give away your whole book, to, we want people to buy it. So we're going to move on to Henry VIII, Reformation. Could the Reformation and the car be seen as casting off of the last vestiges of Roman control and the establishment of a purely English establishment in the form of uh, the Church of England? Yes, I think um, I mean, my book is from Rome to Reformation. So the, the narrative of the book is framed between the departure of Rome in the early 5th century, the legacy, the power that Rome has um, throughout the Middle Ages. And, and finally, that 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 first Brexit, if you like, of 15, 1536, um, the Reformation. I mean, it really is um, it really is one of those transcendent um, episodes in in you know, English even world history. Um, you know, it, it's very quick. Um, it's 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 very sudden. Um, Henry VIII with Cromwell, of course. Um, they, they shut down a monastery, they break with Rome, um, and within three or four years, nearly all of the medieval monasteries have been uh, pulled down, destroyed. Um, and it, 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 is, it is a sense of, of the last uh, control that Rome has over England, although England's been a nation state since the 10th, 11th century. All the monarchs have essentially paid homage to the popes, so that there's a higher authority, and of course, the church, the clergy, the archbishops answer to the pope. Um, and and you know, there's a sense of English exceptionalism. You know, where, where the English are always going to throw off um, papal Catholic uh, authority. Uh, it used to be thought that there was that kind of building, um, um, you know, overthrow going back to the to the Lollards in the 14th century, and the kind of heretics, but actually uh, recent thinking is that we were a very Catholic country well into the 1500s where we're building new church towers and, 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 and donating, you know, vast amounts of money to, to churches and monasteries well into the 1520s and 30s. So in terms of the popular, uh, the popular belief, we might be, might be anti-papal and we were very suspicious of foreigners as well. There's all sorts of endless reports that uh, throughout the late Middle Ages of, of this dislike of foreigners and Flemings and Italians and so on, which seems to be a thing in English history. We'd already expelled all the Jews in 1290 and it's extraordinary um, anti-Semitism, we, we would obviously call it today. In fact, the first mention of Holocaust is in English chronicle that the Jews of York were, were all slaughtered in the 1180s. Um, and Roman extracted every last penny out of them and even made them wear a badge, uh, which has chilling repercussions into the modern history. We got rid of, we expelled all the genes at 1290. So we, we've got a kind of track record here of, of disliking, hating foreigners. We've made war on the French for 100 years. It's the English pastime. However, that doesn't necessarily make England anti-Rome. It's a deeply Catholic deeply devout 
society. So uh, well into the 1520s and 30s. So it comes down to Henry VIII. Uh, it comes down to the, 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 the extraordinary power that he had with new treason laws. And, um, basically, if you didn't swear the oath of allegiance to him, uh, you, you were executed. So the abbot of Glastonbury was hanged in his own um, abbey, you know, for, for not for not swearing allegiance. So, um, and the destruction was 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 massive. The whole libraries were were burnt down, and and, and manuscripts were, were thrown into to the to rivers. Gold plate stolen, melted stained glass windows smashed. About ninety five percent of medieval English art and and artifacts were destroyed, and it's extraordinary. You know, orgy of violence in this period, 1536 to, to about 1540. But it's a top-down political, um, you know, uh, act. And, of course, you know, it's carried out with the support of the aristocracy who thought, well, actually, we're going to get, we could get ourselves a nice monastery out of this and turn it into a country house. And, and so a lot of them are given given the property where they buy it from, from the king and, you know, so it's not all the king himself, but it's the the elite uh, are making this this happen. And they were still Catholic; they didn't see anything wrong with kind of plundering and pillaging a monastery, and and, and still called still died Catholics as Henry VIII did himself. But um, it was an extraordinary episode uh, uh, that did really was a fundamental break uh, with with Rome. Toby, this has been brilliant, fantastic. We're always lacking a bit of medieval on this podcast, so you have filled a nice little gap feel free to come and join us again if you've got a new book out or you fancy just talking about something completely and utterly random to do with the medieval period you are very welcome to come back and have a chat with us thank you very much i hope i hope managed to you know bring i brought your holocaust in a bit there and brought in the connections with the 20th century and you know might make people think that medieval you know the connections today are, are all there the first the first holocaust the first uh, expulsion of the Jews. And the Jews didn't return to England until the 17th century. Well, let's get you back on to talk about that with us because that would be a very interesting podcast, something that we haven't really talked about. But do remind our listeners where they can get your book and the title of it. Okay, the book is uh, called The Making of England, From Rome to Reformation. Uh, it's published by Amberley Press. It's out on uh, public release on the 15th of November. Uh, you'll be able to buy it on the usual online outlets and uh, in hopefully on the high uh, bookshops after the 15th. Lovely hardback with some lovely colour color photos and uh, I'm very pleased with the, the product. Fabulous. Thank you so much. Our incredible guests give us 45 minutes of their time to join us and talk about their work or their new book. This is just a small taster. As a result, we have launched our very own bookshop on bookshop.org, where you can find our guests' latest books, you can support them, and you can support us on History Hack. 10% of every sale via our bookshop supports the podcast and allows us to keep going and bring you more top-of-the-line guests. You can find our bookshop at bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash history hack, or search for us in the shop section. Thank you so much for your continued support. We really appreciate our listeners and supporters. So make sure you get down to the bookshop and grab yourselves a new book. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. 
Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.